Did you watch the Oscars? I watched the end of the Oscars, so I caught right at the end when. So, so you were went watching live. Wrong. You were watching live when it happened. Yeah, we were not. <laughs> I've kind of given up on award shows. I find that they're just too too damn tedious, and so. But I I got a news alert from the New York Times, and so we immediately switched over and quick rewound and <laughs> watch it. But it's so totally different. Knowing you know, like the news alert was like, holy hell, they announced the wrong winner of the best picture go watch this fiasco live you know whereas if you're mm-hmm. watching live it's got to be more of a what the hell is going on yeah it, it was very unscripted so the funny thing is of course i was driving home from canada so when i say watching live what i really mean was i had my iphone open <laughs> and i was listening to it um so i didn't see the facial expressions that everybody was talking about i just heard this long really awkward pause and I'm like, well, that's like, and some shuffling in the microphone. And I'm like, that doesn't, that's not usually how you build suspense. It's not like, you know, shuffle, shuffle, shuffle. Right. Everything's, you know, everything's fine here. We're all fine. How are you? Uh, yeah, it was just, it was odd. And then the resulting commotion, I I almost like I didn't pull over the car, but I almost wanted to pull over the car and be like, I actually want to watch this because this seems kind of ridiculous. Uh, so I didn't actually get to watch the video of it until I got home um, in front of, you know, and, and probably I don't think the ne- until the next day, uh, sitting down in front of my computer being like, okay, what actually happened during this nonsense? Um, and then watching like Warren Beatty just look completely confounded (laughs) and and be like uh let's uh let's maybe not announce this and then i forget who was who was his co anchor Uh, presenter faye dunaway there we go for somewhere uh her name wasn't coming to me but yeah faye dunaway just being like all right it's la la land and everybody you could just see like his face crystallize in right. oh my god we've made a huge mistake right i don't know that we should have done that right <laughs> yeah exactly even though it's live tv but the show must go on right and it's, i it, mean it it's funny too because to my memory and like i said i don't really watch award shows anymore but it seems to me that in my mind that the oscars is the one that's only that that's most bragged over the years about the the fidelity of the vote counting process and the secrecy and and you know the the very ostentatious mentions of their partnership with Price Waterhouse or now it's Price Waterhouse Coopers, yes. you know, and, and giving the them special <laughs> briefcase. <laughs> right. And that the two briefcase carriers have become became even before way before this. Now they're much better known. But they were part of the red carpet ceremony, you know, where they're dressed up and they're 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 ostentatiously bringing you know, they're carrying these briefcases full of the <laughs> the winning envelopes. Uh that they're the the show that you know, like uh, other award shows. I don't remember that you know any any kind of exposure to the uh, integrity of the process. No, exactly. I mean, the Golden. It's also the history of the award show, right? Where you look at the Golden Globes and you look at the Emmys, um, and to a much lesser extent the Tonys. The Tonys are more on the Oscar levels, but especially if you look at the Golden Globes and the Emmys, they're very much more of a like. Let's sit down and have a boozy lunch and acknowledge <laughs> that these are probably, you know, probably uh, win awards that are won by massive marketing campaigns. But also, let's feel good about ourselves. Whereas the Oscars, for the, for as long as I've been alive, and much more than that, was raised as the like 
this is the pinnacle of, you know, achievement as an actor or an actress or a director. And, you know, once you're recognized at the Oscars, then you have become a legitimate star. Uh, and, and that was the thing. It's like, if you want to you become big, you have to get an Academy Award nomination. Forget the Golden Globes or the Emmys or anything, you know, along those lines. Those don't matter as much at the, as the Oscars because the Oscars are voted on by us. And we, you know, we have this proud tradition. And like you said, PricewaterhouseCoopers, I'm pretty sure that's the only, like, accounting firm I knew by name growing right. up. <laughs> you know, you don't, you, when you ask little kids, like seven-year-olds, like, how many accounting firms can you name? And I'm pretty sure that, at least growing up in L.A., the only thing people would have been able to like oh yeah pricewaterhouse coopers they do the oscars like they're they're the people who look a little bit nerdy in really fancy suits and dresses holding giant on or giant briefcases that remind you of nuclear football they they take care of this and they they make sure that the integrity of the oscar stays intact damn it hey can i just I, remember let me yeah, take, let me take a moment here and do my own warren Beatty. just let me double check that we're okay here can you can you double check that you're using the right mic in skype yeah I absolutely can. Because, like, you sound uh, pretty good, but you sound ever so slightly tinny. Is that good? Can you hear me tapping on that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All right, you're sorry. But I'm using the right microphone. All right, you're good. All right, I just wanted oh. to double check. <laughs> but I figured out why. Hold on. I'm using the right microphone, but the wrong side of it. Oh, now you sound much better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, now, now we've proven that uh, podcasting... On a <laughs> afternoon, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're done. Show's done. Show's over, everybody. It's not La La Land. You do sound it's not. That's good. I'm glad. I definitely don't want to sound tinny on the talk show. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. I'm so glad I said something now rather than two hours from now. Um, Me too. <laughs> so. I found this so interesting because it, it really was the worst possible. It was the biggest award. <laughs> The end like, of the night, so and, they couldn't cut to commercial. And, and it's like no offense, no offense at all to the nominees for best sound editing, because it is it, it's the <laughs> biggest award that they can win. And I understand that these are professional, you know, like in in a way that like you and I work in a niche area of journalism, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it, I understand what that's like, and that you're they're obsessed with sound. That I'm not trying to diminish the embarrassment that it would have caused if the same mistake had happened two hours earlier when the best sound editing award was given out, but it would have been so much less publicity the next day. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't. And also honestly, the best, the winner of best sound editing, chances are they would have gotten up and then before reading their speech, they probably would have looked down at the card and been like, Hmm, this has nothing to do with sound editing. Right. <laughs> Although maybe they wouldn't because as Right. Uh, the the article you were sharing with me earlier about typography. Once I got a chance to look at the uh, the the winner cards that they were distributing, who puts the name of the category in ten point font at the right. bottom of a card it, like that? Yeah, because that would have been the other thing. If the same mistake had been made with an earlier award, it's also possible that the the person reading it wouldn't have made the they mistake would have of it. reading it because part of what made the, the series of unfortunate events that made this possible is that the name of the movie of the 
previous winner, what happened is, for anybody who isn't sure of the details of this, the second-to-last award was given for Best Actress, and it was Emma Stone in the movie La La Land. And they, they keep two copies of these cards on both sides of the stage. And when they came out, when he was supposed to give them the last card of the night, he gave Warren Beatty the second-to-last, which was the one that was just announced. So the mm-hmm. second-to-last award was for Emma Stone, La La Land, and he gave Warren Beatty a card that said the exact same thing. But it just so happened that La La Land was one of the nominees for Best Picture and was highly favored to win it, so it was no surprise. And so when Faye Dunaway looked at the card, it said Emma Stone, La La Land, and she just sort of like, well, what? I don't know why they put Emma Stone there, but I'll, I see La La Land, so I'll say La La Land, which was, mm-hmm. in hindsight, a mistake, but it's kind of reasonable. You know, yeah, it's not like you know the card said I don't know uh, Zootopia, right? But if, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, that makes sense. If the same, I gave the guy the guy got the wrong card from the previous award was halfway through the show. There's a good chance that none of the movies that are up for the current one were in the one that was previously announced. Mm-hmm. And then they they'd be like, I don't, you know, they'd have to say like they maybe that would dawn on them. Like holy he- holy heck, they gave me the wrong card. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, a the whole procedure, this whole procedure of having two sets of cards, seems like a massive mistake to me. <laughs> oh my gosh! So the way I understand it, and I may be totally wrong, and things have changed since then. So if there's a listener out there who has inside info on the Academy Awards and wants to correct me if I'm wrong, go for it. But the way I understand it is this is left over from an older tradition pre, you know, I don't even know, maybe even pre, uh, like, backstage handlers, with the idea being that in order to make the show run smoothly and to make things interesting, because it is, after all, a stage show and a show that is being produced for television, uh, people are going to come in from opposite sides of the stage. Um, but because there are, you know, as as time has gone on, there are like big numbers and things have to change at the last minute, a presenter may have been originally scheduled to come on from stage left and then abruptly needs to come on from stage right. Mm. Um, and rather than having to, you know, send a runner in black, like zipping around the back of the stage and maybe running into, you know, the best actress nominee or something. Well, and, and also, she's doing a and costume also change. that would <laughs> violate the idea, the rule that the only two people who have these envelopes before they're announced are the two representatives of Pricewaterhouse. Exactly. Right. And that also takes away the secrecy. So the thought is, well, we'll just put one briefcase carrier stage left and one briefcase carrier stage right. They each have a copy of all of the awards. So no matter what happens, the presenter, no matter where they end up having to enter from, they will always be right next to the envelope necessary for their entrance, which is a lovely idea in theory. Um, and, you know, 80-some-odd years until now worked okay. <laughs> yeah. I, it, 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 and even if you want to stick with it, it's clear that the procedure should have been that it should have been with a very strict, you know, like you know, double-checking. If you're off stage on the other side, and so, in other words, your colleague, like let's say you and I are the two people giving out these awards. If it's your mm-hmm. turn to give out Best Actress in a leading role – I'm going to have my copy of that exact envelope in my hand, and then I'm going to watch the presenters go out on stage, or I guess, who was it? It was uh, Leo DiCaprio comes out on stage, mm-hmm. reads it, and hands Emma Stone the Oscar. And then at that point, I'm going to take my copy of that card and put it in a 
different pocket, you know, right? Like uh, Put it uh, not in the not in the hand that I'm about to, you know, give to right? the next presenter. I'm going to yeah. systematically do that at each, you know, for each of the awards to to at least it doesn't quite make it impossible that I could do it because I, you know, you'd have to like destroy it or something. Uh, yeah, and people want it for memorabilia and the like. Right, but, but they had still, they had photos of the guy backstage. Uh, you know, the, this poor fellow who was responsible for this, and taking a photo of Emma Stone. Right, moments before he's goofing around on Twitter with his iPhone, uh, taking pictures of Emma Stone, and then there's photos of him holding two envelopes. Like he's still got two envelopes in his hand. The best actress one that that he should have put into a different pile and presumably the the best picture one that he needed to give to Warren Beatty in a minute and he just gave him the wrong one which is insane but when you look at the envelopes like Andy it's funny cuz the the tweet that got that got sent around the world with the uh like the most popular tweet showing how hard the envelopes are to read was uh a freeze frame of from his TiVo that Andy Anatko, friend of the show Andy Anatko, uh, posted to Twitter, and and it, yeah, <laughs> it's like a deep red envelope with very small burgundy on gold. <laughs> no gold on burgundy, which I think is worse. It's, oh, that's right, that's right. Yeah, right. No, it is much worse. Yeah, light text on dark paper in general is a bad idea when you're trying to read, especially in bright lights yeah. on a stage, and there's tons of people or backstage. But, oh, Backstage, oh, backstage where it's is worse. dark and yeah. everybody involved is 50 or older. And so, I mean, I can, t- I can vouch as a 40, almost 44 year old that, yeah, reading in the dark is a real problem uh, after the age of 40. And <laughs> like small type, it, it just, it's just it, oh, incomprehensible that that would be the design, especially oh. given the system, you know, that, that there are two sets, you would just think that designing to make sure that we always give the right envelope would be there. Maybe it's a little bit clearer on what this envelope is for. And again, I don't understand the the need to write it in such tiny text. I mean, if you look at Andy's photo, it can't be bigger than 12 or 14 point font. No. And that in gold, like, and I understand the concept of, oh, well, we want to write best actress in a leading role versus right. best actress in a supporting role. But can't you write best actress or best picture in big honking, like 36 point font, maybe, you know, in, in legible uh, font? You, That's crazy. You've mm. got it. You've got it. I mean, there's just no excuse for not doing it in dark text on a, on a light background. I know. It's frustrating. Um, and it just, it's just so funny. Anyway, I had a couple of links this week to the critique of the design. And it's, I think the other thing, the other, the other angle is the psychology of it, which is that it, it totally makes sense to me that it didn't even occur to Warren Beatty or Faye Dunaway that we might be given the wrong envelope, right? No, of course not. The Oscars are always right. Like, I think that if you're the guy from Price Waterhouse, I would be thinking, I really would, even if this was like my 20th year doing it and it feels familiar or whatever, I'm still thinking, oh my God, I cannot screw this up on every single envelope. Mm hmm. This off. is the year. This is the year that right? terrible things will happen. <laughs> Somebody, I mean, it's being. <laughs> Somebody said that it is literally, it, it could not be, there's never been a better example of that phrase. You had one job. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. Oh gosh. Yeah, I I do feel kind of sorry for that for that poor guy. Uh, just you know, just I I wouldn't want to be the person to be like. So what did you do at your last job? Well, I inadvertently screwed up the Oscars. <laughs> Best picture. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh boy <laughs> alright let me take a break before we get into the nerdy stuff and um, okay. and thank our good friends at Squarespace next time you make a big move you need a new website make your next move with Squarespace you can get a beautiful website from Squarespace any type of website you need you need a store is that your idea they can make they have templates for stores is it a blog they have templates for blogs podcasts you want to make a podcast guess what Squarespace can help you with that. Uh, and even if you've just got the idea, you can start by getting your own domain name uh, through Squarespace and get it held for you while you work on the idea. Everything you want to do with a website, from the domain name to the hosting to the analytics and stats as, the, as you see what people are doing and what they're doing at the website, all of it goes through squarespace.com. Everything you do is set up visually, drag and drop, click and drag, that sort of thing. If you want to, if and uh, listeners of the show, it's very likely. If you have the capability, if you know what you're doing, if you've got a bit of a web development nerd angle to your abilities, you could drop in and put custom JavaScript in. You can modify the CSS if you want to, stuff like that. So if you want to get nerdy and look at the code, you can do it. But if you don't, you don't have to. And it's really a very app-like experience of the way that you can just drag stuff around and have a professionally designed website, no matter what your skill level is technically. Uh, where do you go to get a free trial? Go to squarespace.com. Just go there. You get a free trial. You don't even need a code or anything like that. The thing you want to remember is when you do sign up, remember this code, Gruber, my last name, G-R-U-B-E-R, and you'll save 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, make your next move with Squarespace. Uh, I thought we'd start. Did you see this thing where uh, the Apple shareholder meeting was earlier this week? Yes. Good old Apple shareholder meeting. Uh, we used to, when I worked at Macworld, we used to send somebody down there to just take notes. And it was usually very boring. And there was always one person who's like, let's divest all the, the company of yeah. all of the X and Y. Um but this this year it was a, a little bit different. This year's a little bit interesting. It's like the bylaws of a public corporation are such that a, a, a crackpot with a sh with one share of Apple stock can like get the microphone if if yep. they if they <laughs> so choose. I had no idea until this year. I, I've never been to it. It's never been something that I've uh, thought that saw the need to cover you know firsthand. Um, I had no idea that they held them at town hall. I thought, I thought it was like some big thing where like, like a thousand you know Apple diehards love to go you know like they buy a share and hold on to it forever just so that they can go, you know like like a like a like a MacWorld keynote or something. Yeah. Oh, we can go and see the. Yeah, I I just don't think that that many people either realize what the annual shareholder meeting is. Or they don't really r think that. Oh, yeah, this is my this is my chance to be within ten feet of Tim Cook. So it's this it's, is going to be great. It's really <laughs> just like a hundred people who show up. Yeah, it's because town and hall I, is tiny. Yeah, there's no there's really not a lot of space. Um, and I do think I can't remember how it goes, but I I feel like there's some kind of 
um, priority system, but I may be wrong on that. Where you have to like RSVP or something like that. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they actually have enough space. So the news that came out of it was somebody asked a question. This is from a report at nine to five Mac. Um, It's not on video or anything like that. So who knows what the greater context is, but the news that came out was that Tim Cook said something about the pro area again. And here, here, I'll just read from nine to five Mac story and I will put it in the show note. I promise. Cook also hinted at Apple's product pipeline by promising Apple will, quote, do more in the pro area, end quote. Cook called out the creative field as especially important to Apple while pushing back against the notion that Apple is too consumer-focused now. Quote, don't think that something we've done or something we're doing that isn't visible yet is a signal that our priorities are elsewhere, end quote. Um. That's about as little (laughs) as you can actually say (laughs) specifically. Like, I don't expect him to reveal anything specific in response to a shareholder uh, question. But he literally didn't even mention whether the, or at least in the quote, I don't know, you know, again, it's the selective quotes from, um, let's see who wrote this at 9to5Mac, Zach Hall at 9to5Mac. But at least from what he quoted, it doesn't even mention whether it has anything to do with the Mac or not. Like, yeah, because they have the iPad Pro, which is, you know, I don't know if you could tell, but given the name, they consider a device for pros. (laughs) For professionals, yeah. Uh, Well, I do think, though, I do think that in Apple marketing speak, pro doesn't necessarily mean professional user. It means something a little more nebulous. It's sort of more like, like what in other context would be like deluxe or premium just nicer and more expensive is sort (laughs) of what they mean by pro um and the ipad pro in particular exemplifies that in my opinion because for example the macbook pros definitely look different than the regular macbooks they're thicker Mm -hmm. and heavier and in a way, that's not as nice, right? Like, if you just, in terms of, like, which one's nicer to carry around all day, a MacBook is better than a MacBook Pro because it's thinner and lighter. Um, For sure. It's that trade-off of we'll make it thicker so we can put, uh, you know, more faster, faster but heavier components in there and a bigger battery and stuff is, in in a lot of ways, leads towards literally professional use cases. Whereas the iPad Pro versus the iPad Air, it's really just a nicer iPad, yeah, well, but uh, you could also argue the same the same concept, right? Where you have the 12.9 and the 9.7-inch iPad Pro. They're the only iPads that can use Apple Pencil. So right. that basically limits, like, creative professionals, if you want to use an iPad as a proper sketching tool, right. you know, the only thing to get is an Apple Pencil and an iPad Pro. Like, there's no, there's right. not even any point using a third-party stylus anymore because it's just so much of a better experience on that. And the you could argue that, again, the processing power on the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, the True Tone screen on the 9.7, like, they are nicer right. features, um, but specifically for people who spend a lot of time staring at a tablet screen, a True Tone screen is going to be nicer for them, especially doing proofreading or typography correction or any of the above uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a better workspace. Yeah, there's overlap. So, there's clearly overlap yeah, between is. Apple's definition of pro and actual lowercase p professional use cases. <laughs> there's a lot of overlap in some cases, but it doesn't. It's not like a one to one mapping. 
No, it's not the way that it used to be, right? Where when, when Apple said, this is our pro computer, what they really meant is, this is the computer that the top you know, 2% yeah. of the market is going to buy for professional use cases. Um, so who knows what he means? We're going to do more in the pro area. I mean, it's... <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's better that he said something than that he said nothing uh, in terms of, let's just say, the broader context of the concern that Apple is losing interest in high-performance high computing professional Mac uses, you know? Yeah. Which is it's a funny. broad area, but I'm talking, you know, the areas I'm thinking about, developers who who have code that takes a long time to compile, uh, video mm. editors, see, you know, mm-hmm. graphics, you know, people who do computer graphics and, and areas like that. Uh, re- like researchers, like people who do like AI research and have these huge data sets of, you know, obviously artificial intelligence is, you know, it's never not been an interest, but it's exploding in practical uses where it's really starting to become a consumer thing. Um, There's all sorts of super high performance uh, uh, computing that people who are working on that need to do. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's this, you know, (laughs) the Mac Pro hasn't been updated in 1100 days. So... (laughs) Oh, it's, yeah, it it is overdue by uh, just... Just a few years, just a, you know, just a while. I don't know. It's funny to me having transcribed many, many things that Tim Cook has said over the years, um, usually at financial calls when he's, again, speaking off the cuff. Um, And the sentence phrasing, it may not just it may not be, you know, an exact transcription, but the don't think that something we've done or something that we're doing isn't visible yet is a signal that our priorities are elsewhere. (laughs) That that is very classic Tim Cook being like, "What do you mean we're not doing things for pros?" Right. We, you know, he, it's it's him being at least from again my reading, it's him being slightly defensive and slightly confused as the you know why aren't you guys patient and just trust that we know what we're doing, um, which you know you you can be that way as the CEO of a major company, but like you say, John. The Mac Pro hasn't been updated in 1,100 days. Like, so, there, it's not like people are throwing their hands up in the air and saying, "Oh, Pro users, you know, you guys were just catered to six months ago. You never, you know, don't worry about it." Like, there are some valid concerns in this space. It's sort of like the 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 graph of how much anxiety it causes by as as the Mac Pro goes unupdated. It it's. I'm not going to say it's logarithmic, but it increases over time. <laughs> it's not linear. It's mm-hmm. as time goes on, it gets scarier and scarier because it seems all the more preposterous, you know. So a couple of weeks ago, sometime somewhat recently, I linked to um I linked to a story about a, a guy who works from a, a guy who works in the professional video industry and it was just talking about how he expects he's going to have to switch from Mac pros to windows machines soon because he's dependent on these, uh, uh, cutting edge. The, the work he's doing needs GPUs and mm-hmm. these NVIDIA boxes are coming out with all Cuda these boxes, right, yep. parallel <laughs> GPUs. And it really is so much of where, uh, Moore's law still applies is in G, the you know year over year improvements to GPUs and the parallelism and and you know it's just where performance computing is going 
And, you know, how, how, I don't know that anybody was really thinking that the Mac, even when the Mac Pro was brand new 1100 days ago, it wasn't like the world's fastest GPU. And no. it's, you know, and now it's unchanged over 1100 days. So I got push, some pushback on that from people saying, hey, you know, you just linked to this now, but that was from May. That was like May 2016. It's old news. And I actually didn't notice that. It was like, and I hate, it's like one of the mistakes I make, I don't know, couple times a year during fireball is I'll link to something thinking it's new and my comment makes it seem as though it's new and it's not, it's, you know, I don't know, however many months or even a year out of date. And mm. it's just, it's somehow I have a blind spot for double checking the date on a post. Cause sometimes it's like, what happens is I'll see somebody link to it on Twitter or something. And the link on Twitter is under the, the guys that it's new. So I click it's on brand it. New, right? yeah. <laughs> and you know, in some templates and, on a blog or something like that, the date might not be prominent. It might be at the bottom yeah. or something like that. And I don't know. I just hate when I make that mistake. But in this particular case, I actually feel like the mistake, it, it, I sh you know, it I lends did, itself to your argument. Right. I updated the post then to say that he wrote it in May of 2016 so that everybody, everybody who subsequently read it would know it. But the fact that the Mac hasn't been updated, Mac Pro hasn't been updated since then just makes his arguments all the more relevant. Absolutely. And, you know, he's not shouting in a vacuum. I have friends who work at visual design agencies who actually a, a close friend of mine was really uh, sort of wrestling with herself whether or not to get one of the new MacBook Pros um, this year to replace basically an aging I've 2009 era MacBook Pro uh, because she needs, you know, she needs the power and she wants she wants an updated portable workspace. But the MacBook Pro is essentially for her to buy it. She would be compromising on the kind of things that she would need for running Cinema 4D and the like. Um, and it's really like, yes, video editors and graphics professionals are a niche audience um, and certainly more niche for Apple than they were. Uh, a decade or even two decades ago, uh, but there's still, you know, that's that's still a segment that can move some some product. You know, video professionals don't usually, especially pro, uh, big production houses. You know, they're buying twenty, thirty, forty computers for their for their workforce, and if those computers are all tricked out Mac Pros so that they can process footage, like that's not a like yeah, it's a drop in the bucket compared to iPhone sales, but it's still a pretty hefty chunk of 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 Mac sales. Right. And for them to just be like, yeah, we're just gonna give up and hand this to Windows because we don't care enough about that market anymore, or that market isn't interesting enough to us anymore. And I, part of me as a former film person it really kind of is like a stab in the gut because I don't, you know, like so many of my film friends and myself included, like we don't enjoy Premiere. We don't enjoy, you know, working with Cinema 4D or Adobe's products. Like the whole, one of the whole excitements about getting into this industry was working with tools like Motion and Final Cut and, and Shake before it got discontinued. And for Apple to basically be like, yeah, this is not an interest to us anymore. Apple can do this, but they're essentially, you know, they're essentially telling people who've based their entire livelihoods on working on a Mac and building up a software platform on the Mac. Eh, sorry, you're going to have to go learn another platform or go switch to another operating system because your, you know, our bottom line, it does no, no longer includes this segment of the population. I it, it, it what what occurred to me in that wake of the the cooks 
you know, more or less stay tuned again uh, response to this question at the shareholders meeting is that Apple's culture of secrecy about products it works fine when the company is functional. There are trade-offs, you know, like, and, you know, people have, this is one of those evergreen topics about Apple is what if they were more open and, you know, in the ways that in the, the Tim Cook era, they are a little bit more open in some areas. Um, there are trade-offs between secrecy and openness in terms of maintaining a surprise, in terms of not over-promising, uh, being able to over-promise and uh, under-promise and over-deliver as opposed to the other way around. For example, one of the things, you know, in a lot of companies adhere to is not talking about release dates of products, because if you never talk about the release date of a product, it won't be late. Whereas if you do and you're late, then you're late. Um, so the, the trade-off, their, their culture of secrecy has trade-offs when their product development is functional. And, and those trade-offs, I think Apple has long believed work in the company's favor. But, when they're not functional, it, the culture of secrecy just completely breaks down. I mean, and clearly the Mac Pro has is a dysfunctional product at this point because they haven't, yeah. you know, like if they had canceled it a year ago, if they had just said at WWDC that, you know, you know, the time for these. The Mac Pro is done. Right. Yeah. And, you know, the iMac is our is our pro desktop. Um, obviously, it, it would not have gone over well with a certain audience who who you know wants higher you know the highest performance they can get but at least you couldn't say that it's dysfunctional i mean that's a rational decision and then people can plan accordingly but well and one year later we wouldn't be talking about it right. still it just would have happened right i i just feel for me the last year like from wwdc through today has is is the period where for me at least it's gone from the Mac Pro is overdue to the Mac Pro is ridiculous and the fact that Apple isn't is still selling it isn't saying anything is it, it I, I don't know if the company is in denial about it or if they're it, I, I don't know but it's uh, to me and again I don't I'm not saying they need to because need is is the wrong word but i they ought to if it's true that they're going to have some kind of event this month um to announce you know the rumors are rampant that they're going to have new ipad pros and we can talk about that in a moment but uh ipad new ipads um maybe like updated iphone se maybe red iphone 7s maybe even a new imac although i don't there's not as much smoke to that chatter yeah fire but um but on the other hand, iMacs often don't get the attention in the supply chain, Asian supply chain rumor chain that that iOS products do. So maybe it's just that. But the, I don't. I haven't heard anything about new Mac Pros. Um, no, aside and, from people complaining that they're not here. Right. But I I I really think Apple ought to, and it's not going to. It wouldn't be comfortable. But I really think that Apple ought to somehow address that elephant in the room at the event, even if they have nothing to say. And, and I, I don't know exactly. Cause I don't know exactly what their plans are. I don't know, you know, but they really ought to say something more than, you know, they should let Mac pro users know what, what, what the heck is going on and yeah, acknowledge absolutely. the fact that this is ridiculous. The thing that really frustrates me and I kind of forget about it until uh, it gets brought up again, is the fact that they're still currently selling the very, very out-of-date 
Mac Pro. Right. It's and it, and not at a discount nope. either. It's just full price for a what four and a half year old computer. Right. And that's another policy that that has trade-offs but makes sense from Apple's perspective. This this policy of that they don't cut product prices as the life goes on. Like so but- if they come out with a Mac book and it doesn't get updated for 15 months. In that 14th month, when the new Mac, when the old MacBooks have only one month, but they haven't been replaced yet, they still sell at the same price. Whereas Dell, you go to Dell, the, the laptops, it's like buying commodities. You know, like every month they go up and down in price based on you know where the RAM market is and and SSD components dropping. You know, and they come up with weird prices. Like you configure your Dell computer and it's eight hundred sixty seven dollars or something like that instead yep. of eight ninety nine. Apple and picks, weird sales too, right? And Apple picks prices that are that are the price is part of the marketing where they have nice even. You know, it's twenty four ninety nine and it's going to stay twenty four ninety nine. And part of the reason they don't drop it to Twenty two ninety nine, fourteen months after it came out, is so that when the next one comes out, they can use the same price point. And so clearly, that's what they're doing with the Mac Pro is maintaining these price points so that when the replacements come out, it doesn't look like the prices went up by two thousand dollars. Of course, but <laughs> it only works when the product development is functional and it comes out yeah. on a regular basis. Like you can sell an eleven month old computer at the same price, and you're only. It, asking for a small premium. You can do it on a, let's say it's an 18 month development cycle. You can do it at the 17th month and expect that informed consumers know, oh, this is not the time to buy a Mac Pro at 17 months old. There's probably a new one coming. But to do it with a, a three-year-old computer, is it, 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 it's embarrassing. It's insulting a little bit. And it's, like you said, because there's no new product and they're just parading the fact, you know, the latest and greatest software. I forget uh, a while back, uh, someone posted to Twitter, you know, the Mac Pro with the latest and greatest software, including Aperture, something that's been sunset. Right. Did like they fix that? Is that still on the website? I actually don't know. I'm, I, <sighs> I wouldn't be surprised if it still was, because that's the problem, is that it just doesn't feel like the Mac Pro is a priority. And honestly, even if it was just... I don't know. I would much rather they pull the product off the market and say, coming soon. Right. And just, you know, you want to make it nebulous? Just say, we have, you know, do the, do the nebulous Apple Store thing. We have something great in store for you. And then just leave it like that. And I'd rather be speculating about, oh, well, they have something in the pipeline. And who knows if it will come out in 2017 or 2019, but they still have something in the pipeline. Whereas right now... They're basically saying that by not discontinuing the Mac Pro, but every year that the old Mac Pro still stays on sale, it's just, it's frustrating. And it's also, it's one of those things where, yeah, you can sell an 11-month-old computer, you can even sell an 18-month-old computer, but once you start selling a computer that's been on the market longer than it's covered by AppleCare, or that, like, people would actively use it, that's when I start getting a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah. And one of the weird things, when I published that piece, uh, the recent piece about the, the video guy who's getting out of it, I got some amazing emails from some some Daring Fireball readers, most of them in the video industry specifically, although one guy was like an AI researcher, which is where I got that idea earlier before, where, where his team was going to... I, I forget what exactly area they're working, but more or less they just wanted to have massive amounts of computing 
to throw this at. And in years past, because they work on Mac OS X uh, and prefer the Mac as a, like a development environment, just would have gone to Apple and just bought gobs of Mac Pros and hooked them together for parallel processing, but instead built their own little network out of Linux boxes, which none of them had previous experience. You know, the reason they would have rather gone with the Mac Pro is they know the Mac Pro. And it wouldn't have they wouldn't have had to do a bunch of learning about Linux before they got to the AI work that they really got wanted to do. They had, would have had to do more work up front to learn how to even set it up. But then of they course. said it was worth it because it was so much faster. And now we can just buy these boxes and just throw them at the thing. Um, but I heard from a bunch of video pros in the movie industry, including somebody who was working on like a super ma- I'm not going to say the name cause it was, I just treat emails confidentially, but let's just say a, a, a movie with like a $150 million budget. That's an upcoming summer blockbuster. Uh, <laughs> and that they're still doing editing like for dailies on the 2012 Mac pro. I think it's like the version number is like five comma one, but like the last, uh-huh. the, the last cheese grater Mac pros, they had like seven of them. Uh, on you know, on location for like editing dailies and stuff, uh, which is ridiculous. Like that's unbelievable. That not only is the Mac Pro as as they're selling it three years old, but that there are industry professionals where money is clearly not the problem, <laughs> who just prefer to work on a on a, a five year old computer. And they said like yeah. it's you know, and and part of it with this movie is you know we. we we want to use what we, what we're familiar with. Um, but that the writing's on the wall and that they're moving, you know, next big thing might be on windows. Yeah. Which is heartbreaking. It is. It's very frustrating. As I said, it's, if you've spent 12 years learning your craft and yes, if you're in the digital video industry, your craft is constantly changing and it's your job to keep abreast of all of those changes. But at the same time, you know, if you put 12 years of work into mastering Final Cut Pro and you're an expert at Final Cut and you're an expert at the, you know, compressor and the various workflows, and then they're essentially like, yeah, well, but Apple's just given up on it. So now we have to move away. Like, I don't know if you ever did any graphics illustration, but I remember, you know, back when free, when Macromedia Freehand was a thing, yeah. um, back in the 90s, people, uh, like professionals and students clung to freehand for God knows like 10 years after it was discontinued because they had their workflows and they had like the ability to work through it, like work in it. But, but unfortunately illustration, you know, 2d illustration is vastly different than 3d modeling. You have to be using latest and greatest software and hardware in order to be doing that. And to, to have your stuff look like it belongs in a modern film. You can't get away with using, you know, or you can really only get away with using older equipment for so long before it just it explodes in your face. No, I remember those days. Well, I never did much illustration, but I, you know, I was more of a layout person. So I was, Quark, mm-hmm. Quark Express was my jam, as they say. Aww, um, page but maker. It, <laughs> it, but there was the, the yeah, the every, the graphic, if you worked in graphic design and print, you needed uh, a layout program, which is probably either Quark or PageMaker. I was on the Quark side. You needed an uh, image editor, which is probably Photoshop. And mm-hmm. then you needed uh, a vector illustration app. And that's the one where it was the hardest fought, where there was freehand and illustrator. And I always found, I didn't really do much illustration. Usually for me, it would be like editing something mm. uh, or something as basic as like, 
let's make we can't ship this font up for some reason. So let's make a little graphic and convert to outline so we don't have to ship the font. You know, for some <laughs> some context where you couldn't send somebody you you really wanted the to font. Yeah, you really wanted to just send them a an just a, an EPS. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always freehand made sense to me, and I think people who like it, it it even though they weren't from the same company, it it there's a in my experience, a huge correlation between people who liked Quark Express and people who liked Freehand. That Quark, Quark and Freehand, even though they're from different companies, worked in people's brains the same way. And I know people who hung on to Freehand for, oh my, like you said, like so many years after the war was over. Mm-hmm. Running, running it in Rosetta way right. past the, yeah. God. Yeah, I think it was, what, did Mountain Lion get rid of Rosetta? Yeah, or Lion? It was something along those lines where I had a colleague who literally used freehand up until the point that it could no longer be supported on their Mac, at which point they finally grudgingly switched to Illustrator. So anyway, I don't know. I, I, I feel like this pro question is not going to go away. And I, at this point, I feel like Tim Cook's say nothing answer is no longer. It, again, I'm not going to say it's not acceptable. It's not like anything bad is going to come of Apple if they keep pretending like this is normal but i think it makes them look bad and I, it does and i think that they i just based on my email anecdotally they've they've passed the point where they're starting to lose customers yeah i i would agree with that well it's it's hit that point where their customers have to switch they basically you know they have to fish or cut bait at this point they can't just be waiting around in the water hoping that you know apple will deliver them a giant fish on a plate ready to to run a CUDA system for their graphics needs and, you know, a a beautiful, you know, the sad thing, the really sad thing is Final Cut Pro 10. a lot of people made a lot of fuss about it when it first uh, switched over. Um, And for good reason, you know, it was a fairly limited program, but the people on the software side for Final Cut have actually been doing some really fantastic and smart work. And like the newest version of Final Cut, um, their latest update, which was released, I think, a couple months ago, is really like it's a a dramatic, a dramatic improvement on on um, on that workflow. Hmm. Um, And so it, it, it hurts. It hurts my film editor soul a little bit. That Apple wouldn't give its users the technology to really take advantage of this software that they're develop- they're also developing in-house. Right. Like you're you're letting down your Final Cut Pro team by not giving people the kind of hardware they need to run it. I guess there's some small chance that that in this supposed upcoming event in March that they might answer this. I don't think they're. I don't think. There's any chance that they're going to answer it by announcing a new Mac Pro, but maybe they'll maybe they'll have like a new iMac that they'll say is whether they call it the iMac Pro or just say that this is a professionally spec machine and give strong enough hints that yes, this is our answer, and maybe then take the Mac Pros off the market or lower them in price or hide them on Apple.com. <laughs> take away the aperture mention, right? Uh, yeah, there's a chance. Yeah, I mean, honestly. I could see that happening if Apple essentially just said, "Hey, we made an we made a way for you to have an external graphics card um, and have it work mm. properly on the Mac." Right. I think that would actually that would solve a lot of graphics professionals' problems. Yeah. Because the main issue right now, and then there there are a couple of third party uh, third party boxes that'll do this, where you can plug an NVIDIA CUDA card 
and then try and, you know, run it off. But there's always going to be latency, right? Because it's not it's not built to the same specs and it's not built in, internally to Apple. But the, the question is really, is Apple, you know, does Apple care about that? Does Apple care about the small niche of users who are going to want a CUDA card when editing graphics? Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say. We could talk about the other rumors about the upcoming yeah. event in a moment. <laughs> the the uh, less depressing yeah, rumors. Yeah, that's the ones that'll make us happy. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm going to take a break here and thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Harry's. Harry's makes terrific shaving products. It was started by two guys, Jeff and Andy, who were fed up with being overcharged for razors. Literally, the one day, I, I, one of them was in the drugstore buying a, a replacement razor blades and had to wait for someone to come over and unlock the case because they're like frequently shoplifted items and then bought them and then realized that it's like, it's a lot of money per blade for a product that's no fun to buy. So they came up with this idea. Let's make our own blades. We'll sell them direct and we'll undercut the big name brands on prices. They literally bought their own factory, a hundred year old blade making factory in Germany. They make these blades, they sell them directly online, and they ship them to you for half the price of the leading brand. I, I did one of my favorite things. They've been sponsoring this show for years. When they first started sponsoring, they sent me a kit with a razor, and it had like a, a chrome handle. Uh, and I had it for years. And then uh, a couple months ago, they came out with like a new, a slightly updated version, and they sent me another one, and it has like a, a more of a rubbery handle, which I actually kind of like because to me, it's not slippery. Um, but I looked at my Chrome one that was like three or four years old and it still looked brand new. It's absolutely crazy how well, like you couldn't tell which one was the new one and which one was the old one. Their product design is really, really great. Their packaging design is really, really great. I said this before, I'll say it again. I always feel bad when I like finish a pack of blades from Harry's because it doesn't look like the type of box you throw away. It looks like the type of box you keep, but that's, you know, that's that way lies an appearance on the hoarders show. Um, so all right, I do throw them away, but it always uh, there's always a pang of guilt that I'm throwing away such a nice nice box. Um, all this for two dollars a blade, more or less, compared to the four dollars or more you will pay at the drugstore for a big name brand. They are so confident in the quality of their blades that they want you to try their most popular trial set for free. It comes with a razor handle of your choice, five blade cartridge, and shaving gel. It's free when you sign up. You just pay a small fee. For shipping. That's it. Redeem your free trial offer. Go to harrys.com slash talk show right now. Harry's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com slash talk show. All right. Does this I this rampant rumor that there's going to be three new iPad Pros, 9.7 that I guess it's just a faster version of the 9.7 we have now, 12.9, it's like a faster, better version of the one we have right now. And a 10.5-inch diagonal screen that goes edge-to-edge. Does this make any sense to you at all? Uh, I want it to. Um, I don't know. I I can see how they've been staggering iPad updates over the last 18 months where – you know, they they started with the 12.9 in the Pro and put all of their latest and greatest new features into that. And then the next spring, they had the 9.7-inch uh, iPad Pro, and they had almost all of the features from the 12.9 and some new stuff like True Tone and threw it into that. And I, ge- I guess I could see them throwing a third option into the mix and saying, let's, let's see if this sticks. Let's see if this is better. 
Um, but I, I just don't understand why they wouldn't update the line at once. Right. Like, have like, if they're going to ship a new edge-to-edge design that takes out the chin and forehead or greatly reduces them, why wouldn't you do it in two sizes? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like, I understand why they launched the nine, the twelve nine, and then launched the nine seven because they were still working on trying to right. put the technology of the twelve nine in the screen into the nine seven. I get that part, but if you're going to launch a ten five, like the smaller one is the harder one. So right. presumably, why wouldn't you launch the ten five and then also launch that that version in the twelve nine? Um, and then keep the nine seven as that's your that's your new iPad Air version. Basically, that's the old iPad Pro nine point seven is now just a regular old iPad Air, and these two, right. the ten point five and the whatever the twelve point nine becomes, these are your you know really awesome iPads. Right. Um, to just throw in like one in the middle, it's just it. It feels kind of like taking a dartboard out and like being like maybe they'll like this. <laughs> the only way it makes any sense to me is if this the new one with the edge to edge design is also a lot more expensive. Like if yes. it's I don't know, fifteen hundred dollars or something. You know, so that you say, Oh, I get it. If I just want to pay what I'm used to paying for an iPad Pro, I'll get the new nine point seven, which will be, you know, like a year better specs, but at the same prices as last year. Maybe with mm. more storage or something, you know. But it's typical year over year Apple upgrade of a product. But if I'm uh, if I, I want to spend <laughs> a lot more money, I can get this one that's amazing, because then it's an easy decision. But if the price range, if the prices are like comparable, it doesn't make any sense to me that those products would exist alongside each other. I can see yeah. them switching I mean, to a new design, but then they would take the old design and keep it unchanged and just lower the price. That's what Apple does. Yep, it would be last year's model. The I mean, I could see them getting rid of the 12.9, too, and just being like, here's our, you know, like what they did with the 17-inch MacBook right. Pro when they switched to the new design of MacBook Pro, right. where they're like, okay, this was a good this was a good thing, like, this was a nice idea, but we want to, you know, go with this this design. Um, but that doesn't seem to be happening, according to the rumors. The only other thing that I can think of is... Yes, their their goal is to eventually position the 9.7 as the entry level, and then the 10.5 is the first Pro machine, and eventually they're going to make a, a version of the 12.9 that looks like the 10.5. Uh, pause for dog barking. Um, oh, sorry, one he, second. That's all right. I Olive! just don't think he likes this iPad rumor. Enough. No. <laughs> she She's she, like, she. iPads... She, yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. She has a she has a very masculine bark, so I understand <laughs> the confusion. <laughs> uh, yeah, but my thought is all right. So the only way I can see this making sense is if they've tried to make the twelve nine uh, in this new configuration, and either the battery life is not what they want, or the heaviness is not what they want. Because right. if you look at the 12.9 right now, the 12.9 is still a pretty big compromise. Like, I switched to the 9.7 almost instantly after it became available, and I thought I would hate it because I'd gotten so used to the wide screen of the 12.9, but it was just so much lighter and more portable, even with an Arti like with, with the Logitech Create case, uh, that it just felt like the no-brainer option, especially if I still wanted a Mac laptop around, which I need for, for some for some uh, tasks. Whereas the 12.9, you know, is 
It's it's on the edge of three pounds. Yeah, I know all of it. It's it's pretty terrible. <laughs> it's not it's not the best uh, portable machine for people. Right. Uh, so I I could see Apple being like, well, we don't want to sell it unless it's good. But you know, I especially also, with Apple sales lo- lagging. I, I don't know. There's something about this three three iPad product thing that just doesn't make any sense to me, and I can't help but feel that that there's there's a large chunk of it to be to come that'll and then we'll say oh okay now i I see it makes sense yeah i'm trying to connect the dots here because i'm sure it exists i'm sure as you said that if if this is a real rumor i'm i'm sure that there's a way to to connect it all Uh, all of is disagreeing with me (laughs) (laughs) um did you see in terms of like the way that uh people do are doing work on iPads. I, there was a great uh, thread on Twitter this week where a uh, friend of the show and, and I'm known to me more as like an illustrator, Louis Mancha, uh, is working on a typeface design. Yes. Um, <laughs> and sent it to uh, Jonathan Heffler of uh, Heffler and Company fame uh, on Twitter and just said, hey, do you have any thoughts? And Jonathan Heffler took it and like mocked up the it's like it was a pdf of the whole alphabet that he had drawn and uh marked this up with all of these little notes about places where maybe the curves could be different and the radii could be different and and letters you know like here take this you did a great thing here with the lowercase d but you should do the same thing with the lowercase b and and i'll put links in the show notes i've got them got them here in the notes already but it I looked at it, and as a type nerd, it was super fascinating to see this feedback. And it all made yeah. sense to me. And I was like, wow, that I do, I can see how that would be better. But then I instantly thought, like, I want to know how he how he did this marking up. <laughs> and so I asked, mm-hmm. and it was uh uh it was with an Apple pencil, it uh and an app called Notability, which I have heard mm-hmm. of for the iPad, but it's a a PDF, you know, you can import PDFs and then you can draw right on top of them. And it seems like it's really, it's been around for a while, but it seems like it's really embraced the pencil. Um, and it, uh, Heffler said to me that with the 12, here's what his tweet, with, with the 12.9 inch iPad and the Apple Pencil and Notability, they moved all of their proofing workflow from paper to screens in the last year. And they're saving 36,000 pages of printed paper a year. Uh, and I found that fascinating. Like, and I can totally see, and to me, what it's, it's just been an idea. It, I mean, everybody talks about it, but this whole idea of iPads for work and what's the future of work computing. And that to me, it comes down to, uh, it largely comes down to form factors and that iPads and iOS have, it's not so much that they're replacing traditional notebooks and Macs, but that they're, they're good for work in areas that Macs never were. Like, I don't think it ever even occurred to Jonathan Heffler to do, to, to, to do their, their proofing on a Mac before Apple Pencil. You could, 
you could take, if you had a Cintiq tablet or even an, an Intuos from Wacom, you could absolutely hook it up to your Mac and write on the, the typeface or write on the PDF. But it it's just such a, it was a clunkier experience. And the Cintiq was definitely not a, you know, it's not a portable machine. You're still kind of stuck right. at your desktop. And I think he and would have vast, found it, he would yeah. have found it unpleasant compared to his existing workflow of just printing 36,000 sheets of paper a year and mar- <laughs> marking them up with an actual, you know, red pen. Well, the fun thing about critique, right, is that you actually get a chance to step away from your desk. It's I remember back when we were putting together ebooks for Macworld, one of my favorite things was to get our proof and then to make the final edits to go like sit up on our on the terrace at our at our old space and just, you know, grab a can of Coke and my proofs and go through them with an old school red pen. Um, and yeah, I could have like I could have done those on an iPad, probably an iPad Air originally but at the time when we were when we were doing that um but it just wasn't as tactilely sense like satisfying you couldn't really write with the styluses that were available at that point um and the ipad air screen just wasn't good enough whereas you take the the ipad pro you take the the retina display combined with the true tone display so it's actually easier to to work in all spaces and then the pencil which you know in the right app feels like writing with pen you know it may not have the the tactile sensation on the glass but you're still getting the right approximation of what you want to draw and how you want to draw it and that's really really important um, for doing things like that. But it's, it is fascinating to me. You know, I, I don't know if you saw it. I was doing this iPad Pros uh, experiment where I essentially put a call out on Twitter um, and via mm. iMore just being like, hey, I really want to know what, sh- what everybody's using their iPad Pro for when it comes to work. Like, just send me an email. Give me the gist of, like, what you're doing. Um, and, you know, if it's cool, I'll, I'll shoot you an email and, and we'll do some interviews. Uh, and the amount of responses that I got in 24 hours really kind of blew me away. And it wasn't just like, here are the three industries where the iPad Pro is being used. It was across the board, like all kinds of crazy things. Like we, I had a, there's a, a large number of people in IT who use the iPad for, you know, war- running around on the go because it's easier to carry with them than like a little Chromebook. Hmm. Um the one of the cooler ones that I found out about is there's someone who's getting their PhD at Harvard in ancient writing um, who uses the iPad to help recreate and scan and analyze this you know ancient uh, you know pre <laughs> pre Roman handwriting. Um, there's Kyle Lambert, of course, who drew the poster for Stranger Things in almost entirely on his iPad, the one that you know yeah. that that Netflix used like. Uh, and that's like that. That's the traditional thing you think of is like Hoffler, uh, Heffler, you know, uh, doing annotation with the pencil or drawing with the pencil. Uh, but there are so many other industries uh, and weird use cases that I just don't think people really realize are being filled by the iPad in, like you said, in in an, in environments where it just either didn't make sense to have a Mac or a computer, or something where maybe a Mac or a computer was. Filling this gap, but not as well as it could have been. Right. I, I I also think, and there's obviously some legacy aspects to PDFs and eight and a half by eleven paper, or for our friends on the other side of the pond, a a four dimension paper. Um, and so there's some legacy aspects to that. Where if you're if you're in an industry like the law or something like that, where where things get published and they're 
if you don't deal with it on paper, you are dealing it with a PDF that assumes that it's printed on eight and a half by eleven paper, where the nine point seven inch iPad screen is a little too small. It's readable, and you know, but it's it, it's just shrunk it's, down enough that it's it's. There's a reason why that's not the size of the paper we use. For sure. Whereas on the twelve point nine, it is. But then there's other areas, like. It's just nicer artistically to have a bigger canvas, you know, and like I think with Heffler, you know, like I don't think there was any reason that they had to stick, you know, I I think he went with the 12.9, not because it was a legacy process. If they moved their whole workflow from from paper to screens, they could abandon the size. I just think that artistically, it's just better to look at them bigger and to be able to zoom up and to have a bigger canvas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's... It's one of those things where if I was doing illustration on a regular basis, I think the 12.9 would be my daily carry without question. Because it really is, there's something really wonderful being able to work at that larger screen size, especially when you're sketching. I don't know if you've ever taken like a a life drawing class or anything where you're being asked to make like big giant strokes with your pencil and taking your entire arm into the process, not just like sketching with your wrist. Um, That kind of, those kind of big movements uh, traditionally in an in an illustration class, you really can only get by working on, you know, big canvas paper. Because right. if you work on an eight and a half by 11, you're just going to strike, you know, right. strike the thing off of the screen. But the 12.9 inch iPad is one of the first where I actually felt like you could do life drawing sketches on it and not feel like you were drawing, you know, essentially on a post-it note. I I feel like we as there's a part of us anybody whether you like Apple stuff or like you know or you don't but where you feel like it's there seems like there there's a rational part of your brain that sees owning an iPad and a MacBook or just a tablet and a notebook if you have other operating systems as wasteful that you've got two things that are basically the same size 10 to 15 inches and the same thing, a computer with an LCD screen and some way to set up a keyboard and maybe touch, et cetera. And you just feel like, well, there should only be one. And so the, there's a logical <laughs> argument to the surface book movement. Right. But I can't, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I just, you know, I, I think it really just depends on the type of work that you do. And oh, yeah. that there are certain tasks, and it's certainly the ones that computers got good, personal computers got good at first in the last few decades, that basically involve you sitting down at a table or a desk with your palms flat on a keyboard that's flat with some sort of pointing device, a mouse or a trackpad right next to it that you use to deal with a screen that is more or less horizontal in front of you. There's a whole bunch of tasks where that form factor is terrific. Um, And if that's the type of work you do, like let's just say you get, you have a job where you have just lots of emails that you have to answer every day. So you're typing a lot, not just reading. It's a terrific form factor. And you Mm -hmm. can see why, uh, uh, like with the new MacBooks and MacBook Pros where the displays have gotten ever thinner than before, so thin that they can't even light up the Apple anymore. Uh, it's 
the hinge is so great. It is so much easier to put a Mac, set up a MacBook at a desk in front of you, like in a coffee shop, than to set up an iPad with a keyboard. And For sure. It, and again, it's, you know, what are we talking about? 10 seconds? Is it, you know, five, 10 seconds to just do the little foldy thing with your keyboard and get it in? <laughs> but uh, it's not long, but it adds up. Right, it's like it the, the little things. It's just not optimized for it if that's your main point of work. And then when you close it, it's even more work, right? And and yeah, because you have to unfold all of that, right? And I'm not denying that for some people that that there's tons of people who just love writing on their iPads, and that's a trade off they're willing to accept. But you, I don't see how anybody could deny that an iPad setup in laptop configuration, no matter which brand keyboard you're using, is like. It's backwards. It's top heavy. The screen is the heavy part with the battery, and the keyboard is the light part. Whereas a MacBook is oriented the right way, where there's a heavy base and a super light screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think more and more, but it's just taking a long time to find them. We're finding these other contexts, whether it's the actual task you want to do, like illustration, like if you actually want to do, you know, you're drawing something on a screen to mark it up. Um, or if it's just about where you are, that you're not at a desk, you know, like you said, like these sysadmins who are walking around and maybe want to be doing stuff on screen while they're standing, where an iPad is better and it has nothing to do with iOS. I guess, I think we've all collectively spent too much time worrying about the differences between iOS and macOS. Not that they don't matter, but that a large part of it is just the human form factor of where you are. Are you standing? Are you sitting? Are you actually typing? That that matter more. Absolutely. Well, I think about, just going back to illustration, I think about how many different sketchbooks I had in college, right? And granted, a sketchbook is a little bit cheaper than a full-size computer, but still, you know, I was spending quite a lot of money on six, seven, eight different sizes of, of paper because, you know, in some cases, a notebook is going to make sense. In other cases, a post-it's going to make sense. In other cases, a, you know, 36-inch canvas is going to make sense. Um, it's all about finding the right tool and the right, uh, the right product that works for you. Um, and in the case of the iPad and everything that goes around it, um, what's really important is how those things all fit together, right? If I'm going to use my iPad, um, actually, like one, one of the reasons I got my very first iPad back in 2010 was, yes, I wanted to sketch with it, and I was really excited about that. But at the time, I was doing, um, I was doing a, a, a job in a, um, in a t-shirt, uh, online t-shirt manufacturing company, and I was indexing what t-shirts we had in stock. And before the iPad, that meant manually going down all of the aisles of the t-shirts with a tiny little out-of-date Windows laptop on a on a cart where we'd just be like pulling it over this factory floor as we went like uh, box by box to count like how many sizes of smalls, how many sizes of mediums, how many sizes of large. And once we got the iPad, we could very easily enter that into our online inventory just by carrying the iPad around and selecting, you know, okay, this is this has three smalls, great. Right. And we no longer had to use the little cart or, you know, the the heavy laptop or worry about knocking it over to the ground, which right. happened, I think, on multiple occasions. Right. So like in, those in, are the things. In broad strokes, the notebook computer 
you know, the traditional one, like that doesn't have a detachable screen that turns into a tablet halfway, you know, does tries to do both, is duplicating the form factor of the typewriter and of the adding yes. machine and of other things that people have done at desks for a long, long time, way before their computers. So the iPad, in some ways, it, it, like in your story there, is duplicating a clipboard, which, yes. again, is a longstanding form factor for getting work done. You it's don't just think a different of it as, kind of work. Right. <laughs> but it's largely based on the context of where you are, and it's not so much just purely an argument, or, or even less, really, purely an argument about operating systems. And yeah. The operating system could be, you know, going back to Steve Jobs' original comment about the iPad, like, it's a blank slate. Um, all the operating system really needs to do is get out of the way so that you can do your work. Whether or not that, I, you know, that operating system lets you run one app at a time or 20 apps at a time, what the real question should be, is this easier to do my work on than the thing I had before? And if the answer is yes... Then, then you get it. Then it becomes part of your workflow. I mean, obviously, assuming you have the money and all of that. But like, that's that's how it fits in. You know, I carry a 9.7 inch iPad Pro and a MacBook Pro, not because oh, I want to you know duplicate the writing functionality on both, and oh, that's going to be so clunky, blah blah blah. I carry it on the iPad Pro because there are times when I want to sketch something out, or there are times that I want to write freehand, and the iPad Pro has essentially replaced my old school, like big moleskin sketchbook that I used to carry around with my MacBook Pro. Yeah. Um, I guess I could do that as a convertible tablet if I really wanted to, but that kill, then we get into battery life com uh, talks. You know, that's the, that's honestly my big thing about multiple, you know, convertible devices. Um, if I want to sketch, I'm probably going to want to sketch for like, you know, six, seven hours or have that, you know, have that ability to just kind of pull this iPad out whenever and just sketch on it. Um, whereas my laptop is the big, you know, that's that's the thing that you carry around and do your powerhouse work on when you're not at your desk. Um, and if you have a convertible where it's like, oh, well, you turn it into tablet mode um, and then you kill most of your battery sketching on the train, for instance, and then you actually get to a point where you want to use it to do normal work, then you have 5% battery and you have to plug in, at which point it's a desk computer again. Did you see the, um, uh, there's a new Windows 10, I forget what they call these things, the the dual systems, what do they call them? Uh, the, what, convertible laptops? Convertible, yeah. yeah, yeah, so a new one from Porsche Design. Um which was, it's not out yet, but it was announced at the mobile web conference. At MWC. MWC. Um, which, and it looks nice. It does. I'd like to see one. But uh, even though it looks nice, and I think the hinge looks much nicer than Microsoft's Surface hinge, which doesn't, mm. you know, like the, it doesn't. The little, it looks like it belongs in a in an alien movie or something. Yeah, <laughs> the and, curved. It, and it means that the two pieces don't sit flat. There's like a gap between them. They only, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, that would bother me a little bit. Um, but with the Porsche design one, you can see though that both halves of the, when it's in laptop mode, both halves are about the same thickness. The base is about yeah. as thick as the display. So it's a really thick tablet. Uh as compared to an iPad, like to me, that design and it, you know, it it's never going to be a, the best laptop design and never going to be the best tablet design. But maybe if they're right and I'm wrong, maybe you know, optimizing for the middle is a 
good idea. But I, I can't help but think, though, that I would always much rather have an ideal laptop design or an ideal tablet design that can be put into a laptop that's maybe not as nice when in laptop mode as this, you know, the the dual design. But at least when I'm using it in one way, it's as good as it can be. Yeah, I would rather carry two devices and have each des- device be the best it possibly can be at that specific task than try and carry something that does all of those things. Right. Like, I don't need a Swiss Army knife for my electronics. I need smart, you know, dedicated electronics. Right. And there's just some weird context switching that I don't think I would ever get used to there where you're using a lower-powered processor when you're in tablet mode. Uh, and, like, one of the big trade-offs with tablet mode is this Porsche design thing is only advertised as getting three hours of battery life when separated. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the same problem with the Surface Book as well, where it just doesn't have – the tablet does not have great battery life at all. Right. It's There's just so many trade-offs involved. It's so uh, middling product both ways. And Yeah. I do see them. I mean, and, and part of this uh, – just a friend made the. I mean, you know, it's one anecdote, but I, you know, it meshes sort of what, what I see. But a friend was in a coffee shop recently and counted like, you know, a lot of people doing work, um, or seemingly doing work, and it was like nine MacBooks of various ages, uh, like one regular Windows notebook and two like Surface books, um, and no iPads. Nobody using an iPad at you know at all um and i so i can see why some people buy them uh and i think that like you know and who knows what these people are doing but if it's like university students or something like that it's probably a lot of writing it's like i said i think if you're doing a lot of writing it makes sense to be doing it on a macbook and that you know macs are more popular for that sort of thing mm-hmm. but i don't know i I've, i i can see why apple isn't going that way yeah and I, I don't think Apple would go that way unless they found the perfect way to blend it, right? You know, we didn't get we didn't get right. the iPhone before it was ready, uh, just because they wanted to cram. Well, unless you count the Motorola Rocker, <laughs> you don't really. We didn't get a product that was like, let's turn the iPod and the i and the mobile phone and a breakthrough internet communications device into one thing and have it be half-assed and not great. Like if they're gonna do it. They're going to do it well. Otherwise, they're just not going to do it. It's going to sit in some development lab somewhere and and never exist. Right. But it just doesn't make sense to me for either device. You know, not that it doesn't make sense. I see why they came to that middling, just, you know, well, we've got a little bit of battery in this top part that you can take off, but most of the battery is in the base and uh, stuff like that. It makes more sense to me to do it the iPad way, where the iPad is the computer and the keyboard is just a dumb keyboard. Mm-hmm. The keyboard is easy and low power and just works when it needs to work and doesn't work when it doesn't. Yeah, and I, I feel like there's some kind of win that Apple and or a third party, but probably Apple, because I think it would require something even be- a better smart connector on the iPad. But I feel like there's there's uh, got to be some way to make the hinge better, you know, and just make the mm. make the take it from here it is closed coming out of my back pack to set up in front of me on this table as a laptop. It's got to be a way to make that better, I think. Yeah. The uh, the Logitech Create is pretty good, except for the part where it's only one position. 
And mm. if it was like if the Logitech create, if they could find a way to build a smart connector that hinged right. and didn't immediately disconnect when you moved a lot, moved it like a little bit backwards or a little bit forwards, like if they found a way to make a Logitech create that had a hinged backing, um, but still connected via the smart connector, that would be the that would be the ultimate convertible. If you really right. wanted a convertible tablet, like if you didn't need a laptop to do hardcore writing or or multitasking on, and you just wanted to switch to iPad, like. That's what you'd want. Because that, to me, is a perfect example of one of the ways that I... It's why I, for me, for me, obviously, I mean, I'm, you know, when I'm, other than the podcast, uh, my work is writing. Uh, and so for me, I, I, for what I do is work and, you know, ignoring email. But if I decide not to, not to ignore my email, <laughs> I'm writing there too. Uh, the laptop form factor is so much more conducive to my you know, it's so much nicer for me for my work. I'm not denying that it's the other way around for other people, but it is. But one of those things that's so nice, especially if I'm away, I'm not at my regular desk where everything is already set up just so, is that I can adjust the screen infinitely, right? And so if there's yeah. a weird light that's giving me a glare or whatever, or I'm, I'm sitting with a different posture or it's a weird height table or chair, you could just sit there and twist it, you know, and get it perfect. And with exactly. most iPad solutions, you can't. No, not unless you want to keep it flat on the table and work on the <laughs> virtual keyboard, which sounds terrible. Well, and again, no, there's no configuration there. Flatten the table is flatten the table. Yeah, well, I mean, you do flatten a table and then you have an adjustable stand. Like right. I'm using an adjustable stand right now from Elevation Lab, oh, I think, I that uh, like a drafting stand that gotcha. adjusts multiple levels. Right. But that's still not a great configuration because then you have to fiddle and it's it's not as easy as the laptop just like bam open done right ready to ready to write. So anyway, that's my my rant on form factors. All right, let me take a break here and thank our third sponsor. It's our good friends. What a great company! I love these guys. Backblaze. Backblaze offers unlimited native backup for the Mac and for PC. No credit card required to get started. You get a no risk free fifteen day trial at backblaze.com slash daring fireball. You just go there, download the software, put it on your Mac. Don't even have to put a credit card in and just let it start running. And what it'll do is it'll back up everything on your computer to their cloud-based storage. Everything. There's no limit. They don't charge like buy the terabyte. Well, you get one terabyte for this and more. No, everything on your Mac, $5 per computer per month. That's it. And you get it. Unlimited, unthrottled, offsite backup. You got 15 days to try it out, see for yourself. And when it's over, you're going to say, well, this is crazy. This is a great deal. Um, of course, I'm going to pay for it because now everything I have is backed up. And I, you'll have the peace of mind of knowing that you have a backup that is not at your desk where any sort of catastrophe that happens in your house could wreck your data, right? You have water damage, roof leaks, something like that, ruins your computer, ruins your backup drive. Now your backup isn't isn't worthwhile. What if somebody comes in and steals your stuff? Well, that's terrible. Hope it doesn't happen to you. But if you have an offsite backup, you've got that extra protection. There's no gimmicks, no additional charges. It's just five bucks per computer per month for unlimited, unthrottled offsite backup. I have used it personally for years. I would recommend it. Uh, I would recommend it regardless if they were a sponsor. But they are a sponsor. Here's where you go: backblaze.com. Slash daring fireball, and you get a 15 free, 15 day free trial. 
Uh, only other thing I had in my notes for the show, well, maybe talk about Uber later a little, but uh, (laughs) there was a story this week in the Wall Street Journal that came out that got a lot of publicity where uh, it wasn't 100% clearly written, but it the way it was written could best be interpreted that the iPhone, this year's iPhone, uh, the, the fancy rumored new iPhone with the OLED curved OLED screen was going to switch from the lightning adapter to a USB-C port. Uh, not another cable switch. Oh no. They said Apple, this is from the story by, uh, uh, Takashi Mochizuki for the wall street journal. This is their their sources familiar with their plans. They said Apple would introduce other updates, including a USB-C port for the power cord and other peripheral devices instead of the company's original lightning connector. These models would also do away with the physical home button, they said. These updates would give the iPhone features already available on other smartphones. Um, <laughs> I would just say with that last sentence that no other smartphone has a lightning connector. So if they kept the lightning connector, they'd have a feature that's not available on other smartphones. <laughs> um, I, this seems weird. That seemed weird to me. And my guess, and again, I, nobody told me a damn thing. I don't have any little birdies. But my guess is if there's some kind of supply chain thing that this reporter got, it's that they're going to switch to it a, a I think the iPad Pro works like this already, where it, it's a USB-C power brick, and you plug USB-C into the power brick, and then it goes to lightning on the other end for plugging into the device. Yep. And uh, you get, what, 29 watts and get, supercharge. Right. Now, I don't know if the iPhone's going to ship with a 29-watt charger. Probably uh, not. Probably not. But it could ship with a higher wattage charger that charges more qu- quickly. Uh and does USB 3 data speeds, if you need that. Although I kind of feel like data speeds over anything other than the network are sort of oh. But, you know, there's some professional context, like for video or film or, you know, and, and photography and stuff like that, where you might want to, you know, that, that extra speed could be useful in an iPhone. I don't know. But, yeah. the, but the charging speed is the big one. If you can get a, if you can charge faster, that's better. Charging faster is better. Um, the other reason why it would be good for, you know, uh, for photographers, especially uh, now that Apple has allowed you to use the um, the USB connector with the iPhone to with photos, yeah. um, you can offload your raw images direct to your, you know, 128 gig iPhone uh, it, rather than having to carry around an iPad Pro if you want to do some just quick you know, right. quick uh, proofing, or if you want to post something to social media very quickly right. while you're in the midst of something. Like a live uh, Apple event or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> um, I, yeah, but it's, I, I, it just did not ring true to me because I do not think Apple has, I just don't think they're ever going to ship iOS devices with USB-C ports. I know they could. I know there's some people who are sort of hoping that they do because it would it would simplify the universe in some ways, like where <laughs> everybody's phone everybody's phone bought within the last X months or years can now use the same chargers. Um, but I don't think it makes sense from Apple's perspective. And yeah. there are plenty of like the sort of people who are wishing for that 
are I in large I, I I think largely sort of the nerdy type people who have you know Android and iOS devices around the house, and I think there's <laughs> untold tens of millions of people who just already have an iPhone and other people who they live in the house have iPhones and when they buy a new iPhone it would be nice if they could just keep using the same lightning ports that are already around the house. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to have to switch my port. Right. And from those people's perspectives, the switch from 30 pin to lightning just happened. Yes, it, exactly. Despite it, it being what, 4 years ago? <laughs> it was months. It was just a few weeks ago, sorry. <laughs> It's still so fresh. I still have 30 pin connectors in my home. Right. And yeah. I don't think Apple I think I don't think Apple was the least bit surprised by the people who were upset by that change. But I also I also and I don't think it gave them any pause, but I do think they're fully aware of you know it, it would be worse to do it again. Yes, the nonsense the nonsense could potentially be terrible. <laughs> uh, yeah, when you you sent that you wanted to talk about this, this definitely gave me and Renee pause uh, when we first saw it as well because it's you know we've seen stuff going on in the UK and in Europe where you know Apple has to ship adapters in the box to make sure that everything's standardized with uh, with the EU Commission on charging devices and making it easy for everybody. Uh, but by and large, it just, I don't, it, it doesn't make sense to me to swap out the lightning port when the lightning port still does proprietary things that Apple wants it to. You know, they swap out from lightning to USB-C. Um, I guess you could still do made for iPhone USB-C devices, uh, but I don't know how that licensing would work if yeah. they're on top of that also licensing USB-C for a port. I don't know if that increases their you know, their component costs uh, in terms of using a developed port like that, or whether they're just paying a flat fee to use USB in general from the, co for the, from the consortium. I'm not really sure the, the behind the scenes aspect in that. Right. What I do know is we're eventually going to have to have USB-C on one end because that is where the computers are going. Um, and from that aspect, the rumor that USB-C will be involved in a, a capacity, like you said, as a charging capacity on the other end of that cord, that makes sense to me as like encourage consumers to, to hurry it up with the switching. Yeah. And it, there's other things that Apple can do with lightning that people, I mean, and again, let's just get it out of the way. There is a very selfish, they get the, the made for iPhone licensing thing makes the company money and gives them control and limits what, other companies can do with iPhone peripherals. Uh, and that's just in Apple's own selfish interest to, to maintain that. Um, the angle that's good for iPhone users is really just, it's that mass market. Look, you've already got these cords all over your house and you can just keep using them for years to come. Um, but there's uh, little things too, like the fact that because Lightning is completely Apple's proprietary thing, they can change it in software. And a big part of Lightning's design is that it's changeable in software. So, for example, that's why um, the Lightning headphones that they started shipping last year required you to update to iOS 10. Like if you plugged them into an iOS 9 device, you got an error message that said you have to update this device to iOS 10 to use this peripheral because it was a software change that enabled them to work. Mm -hmm. 
and they can't do that if they switch to an industry proprietary. I mean, maybe there's a way to do proprietary stuff over the the standard, but I don't think it's as easy, you know? No. And so I think that the change, and, and it surprised me which people piped up on Twitter and, and who seemed to think that this was reasonable. And again, it's not the most ridiculous thing in the world. Like if they, if it turns out that this is true, if I'm wrong, if, if the, and, and there were like Ming Chi Kuo of KGI, the famed, uh, super well-sourced analyst over there came out with a report like a day or two after the Wall Street Journal report, not calling him out by name, but coming about as close as he could because the entire report was more or less, no, it's because these new phones are still going to have lightning. Um, <laughs> but they might have USB-C on the power brick side. And he even talked about fast charging and stuff like that. So, you know, if, if he's wrong, if I'm wrong, and, and they really do ship a, a new iPhone in September and it has USB-C, I wouldn't find it shocking I would no. just find it mildly surprising. It's, yeah, to play devil's advocate here, um, let's say that Apple decides to go the USB-C route because it makes more sense to them from a, I don't know, consortium perspective. Maybe they're getting pressured in the EU. Maybe it just makes more sense uh, as they continue to expand globally to just have one universal port and not have to worry about adapters or dongles or anything like that. Um I could see them switching and just being like, hey, guys, this is the new normal. You know, our MacBook Pros have USB-C now. Now your iPhones have USB-C. Soon your, you know, the new iMacs are going to have USB-C. And this is our new standard charging port. Um, however, I just don't think it's good business sense for the company because of all the reasons that we've mentioned before. Um, it just, it makes more sense for them to, to have control. Um but, and, and also, I mean, if you look at the rest of their peripherals, including the lightning-based headphones that if, you know, they change the lightning port, it'll only be there for a year. They just released brand new, you know, the AirPods and the uh, Beats X, you know, have lightning connectors. And then the older Beats headphones, you know, the Solo and the, the Power Beats both still charge via mini USB or micro USB. Right. Um, so it's one of those things where if if USB-C standardization was coming down the pipeline as this is going to be our charging port now and forever, you know, so help us God, you'd think that they would start it with the AirPods and the Beats X and all of their accessories that start to have these things. Yeah. And the fact that all of the Apple Pencils would essentially be, be made useless down the line because they use Lightning as well. And could you charge an Apple Pencil via USB-C? That's a good question. You know, they're, they're, it's, it's a, <laughs> it, I, I, yeah, the, the rumor makes my head hurt, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I think that the, uh, the, the analogy to the headphone port is, um, is exactly right. Except that you should ignore the fact <laughs> that for now they're shipping the iPhones without a headphone port with lightning headphones the lightning <laughs> headphones are a stopgap and oh yeah the real transition is to wireless and it's just the fact that they're at this point it costs you know 150 bucks or so for them to sell the the wireless ones that meet their you know that are as good as they think the experience should be i think we just have to wait a few years for the price of those to come down but that in hindsight five six seven years ago 
we look back and we don't really remember the lightning headphones era so much. We, we vate in our memories. It'll be, we used to plug in headphones via the hundred year old headphone jack. And now we use wireless headphones. Yeah. No one's going to really think about it. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen with charging is that lightning is the charging port for all of these devices, except for Macs until, uh, some sort of no port charging is the standard mm-hmm. where I, by which I mean, I, I have this whole rant that I've been meaning to go on about calling conductive or inductive charging, whatever it is. But when you have to still be in physical contact, calling that wireless charging, cause that's not, that's not wireless. No, it's just, it's, well, I mean, it's, it's not it wireless. Is wireless from the phone to the pad, but, but the still pad is still wired. Right. Yeah. Like yeah. and Apple is actually pretty careful about it. Like Apple does not describe the Apple Watch as having wireless charging because it doesn't. No. It's inductive um, charging. Right. Um so I don't know where we're going with that. I don't know if like the next step is going to be inductive charging for these devices or if it'll be a true wireless thing where it doesn't actually have to be in physical contact and you can just have it in general proximity and it'll magically shoot power over the air and <laughs> not make us full of cancer. Yeah, I think that's the big uh, problem there right now. Right. Well, you know, I mean, Wi-Fi hasn't killed us yet, so it's true. I'm optimistic. It just sounds weird. Twenty years and counting. Right. It's like when we first started using Wi-Fi, it really weirded me out. It's like this seems like it should be impossible. This, I mean, and and then you just think like these rays are (laughs) these waves are shooting through me right now. My body is full of gigabytes. Uh, And let's not even talk about cell phones. All of these memes right. inside me, <laughs> right? But you know, I, I until we can do that, until they can get they, they're they're Apple gets wants to get rid of ports, not replace ports with one from another. And Agreed. That, and they don't give two craps about proprietary over, or they give they give a crap, but they're you know they see proprietary as a strength, not as a weakness. Correct. Um, and I do think it's super telling that the AirPods have a. Uh, a lightning adapter. Mm-hmm. They could they could have had USB C. They absolutely right. could have shipped with a USB C charging brick, and they chose not to. Right, and it would have been a big tell, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think it's weird. It is. It's funny. I, I understand why the pencil works the way that it does, and in terms of having a male lightning instead of a female lightning, so that it. It's less convenient if you just want to plug your pencil into something you already have laying around your house. But it's more importantly, it's whenever you want to use a pencil, you must have an iPad Pro nearby to use it on. And if the pencil is out, you can just plug it into the iPad for 30 seconds and get a usable charge out of it. It's not But elegant. it looks silly. <laughs> it looks silly. It's not elegant, but it's a very it's practicality winning out over uh uh, elegance whereas the airpods yes. in comparison are one of the most it's it's just i i can't stop raving about how i love every single aspect of it including the fact that to charge it you can just plug it into any iphone charger you have laying around for a couple of minutes once a week or so exactly you don't have to worry about it and if your buds ever go dark you just pop them in the case and right. it's it's very seamless honestly can i tell you my biggest wish for the rumored ipads Yes. I want I want wireless charging, real wireless charging, area charging 
for the pencil built into yeah. this mythical 10.5-inch 10. inch iPad, right? Yep. Where if you're in Bluetooth proximity, you're going to charge it, Yeah. which I just think would be amazing. Because then yeah. that way, the pencil never dies. It just it charges it whenever you know it's nearby and if you have to make contact then maybe they figure out some way to like induct a charge through the through the display right yeah. where whenever you're drawing on it it's actually sending a tiny charge through the tip into the pencil i don't i know nothing about engineering so all of this may sound like crazy talk and it probably is but that is my dream scenario is it, possible, for an iPad. <laughs> is it possible for them to announce that right now in march 2017 i i don't know either i don't know i don't know i have no idea but if it is <laughs> boy that would be a huge selling point and i can't I, I i would imagine that that's the sort of thing that would get people who bought a pencil a year ago to buy a new one. Oh yeah in a heartbeat and a new ipad because you need right. the new ipad because to- it, it gets rid of the awkward lightning it gets mm-hmm. rid of that right so let's presume and then and, and i think they could get rid of the cap yeah, and, the and then cap, you could you could add a eraser if you right. really wanted. The cap is a huge, you know, if people complain about the cap because the cap is easily lost. Um, mm-hmm. So you get rid of the cap; it's entirely self-contained. So then it's it's that's super Apple-like, right? No input, no right. output. Uh, and it really is. I was just talking with a friend the other day about how like his biggest gripe with uh, well, I'll tell you who it is: Ben Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this mysterious source. Yeah. But he loves the pencil, but he doesn't use it all the time. But uh, if it's in range of your iPad, when your iPad's on, they communicate with each other so that it's ready for you to use. But it's always mm-hmm. in range of his iPad when his iPad is on because he's taking it out of the same bag. Right, he's got a bag. Exactly. That he, he's got a bag that he keeps his pencil and his iPad in, and so even when he's not using the pencil and just reading uh, on the iPad it's slowly draining the pencil because it has a communication. And then when he does go to use the pencil, it's always dead. Yeah, exactly. The pencil's always at 5% because the pencil doesn't quite understand the difference between I'm sitting in your bag ready to be used and I'm being drawn with actively and need battery life. Right. And the reason that this is mildly annoying is instead of like infuriating is because it doesn't take that long to give the pencil a usable charge, but still it happens every time. And if your idea, it's still annoying, your idea would solve this problem. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a step further from what they already do with the smart connector, right? Where the smart connector to me feels like this in-betweener stage because it it has solved the need for Bluetooth keyboards, at least the Bluetooth keyboards, the the keyboards that use the smart connector. It solved that need for those keyboards to constantly be charged separately. It's just, do I want to use a a keyboard with my iPad today? cool, I'm just going to set it up. And because of the way that the smart connector connects, like hooks into the keyboard, it's good. And if they figured out a way to wirelessly charge devices, then we could have uh, variable stand keyboards too, which would also be really cool. That would be cool. And it's, and it's definitely, I think it's a definite situation circling back to what I said before, where there's an awful lot of people who only use their iPad with a keyboard sometimes. Because mm-hmm. the whole point of why they're using an iPad is they're often using the iPad in these contexts where you either don't want a keyboard or don't need a keyboard. You know, it's just not that important that you have a hardware keyboard. And you do that, do that, do that, do that. And the thing that's great about the the smart connector is then when you do need a keyboard, you don't have to worry if it's charged. Yeah, exactly. You just throw it on, use it, and yeah. then put it away. And then you can forget about it for another three months. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. I hope you're right. I hope I'm right too. 
Uh, do you want to talk about Uber quickly? Yeah, let's talk about Uber. Boy, I I don't know what to do. I I, I feel like I'm a t- I'm gonna confess something. I'm gonna be honest and uh, straightforward. I'm um uh because I don't feel I feel like that's the it's the, the, I I feel guilty otherwise, and I feel guilty mm-hmm. about what I'm about to say. I'm gonna confess. I I have not deleted the Uber app from my phone. I, I also have not deleted the Uber app from my phone, despite the fact that I think the company is despicable. <laughs> right. I, I haven't used it since then. I have, but I, I have, also haven't deleted it. I have used I have used Uber <laughs> um, because there's the only one that can get a black car in Philadelphia, and the black cars have SUVs. And sometimes, like I went out to dinner with some uh, friends, and we needed to we needed to fit uh, five adults in a car. Hmm. Um. So I still use it, and I justify it in my head as, well, I know they're losing money on every ride they give. (laughs) (laughs) I'm robbing some poor defenseless VC. Right. But I feel terrible about it, and it's, I don't know. At some point, it's, it's, you know, I don't know. What I want is I want Lyft to connect to these black car drivers, and the black car drivers, I think, would jump at it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think at this point anybody is like, yes, I love working for Uber. I am proud to work. Maybe, maybe Travis, what's his face? Well, the drivers are. Yeah. (laughs) No, but that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I think the drivers are, you know, looking for other options if they can. They still want to, you know, they want to drive in the car sharing economy because it's a good way right now to make money, um, at least until the bottom falls out. But, I I don't think any of them is like, yes, I feel so loyal to Uber and Uber has stood right by me because Uber has not really stood right by anybody. Yeah. They've kind of been huge dicks. There's got to be a way. And I know that – and I understand that my argument that I know that they're losing money on every ride, that that's actually their plan. And it's – you know, that the basic idea – it's not really a secret – is that they want to monopolize the market and then once they have the monopoly in a market they can raise the rates to where it's profitable mm-hmm. um I, I i'm not quite sure how they ever get there because uh, at the point where they raise the rates i don't see how new competitors don't pop up like i don't see how they have a, a real path to uh to a monopoly because yeah. and their whole argument is is they're destroying the existing regulations. It's not like they're going to get new regulations put in place that that say that in the city of Philadelphia Uber is the only ride sharing app available. Yeah, they're not going to bo- benefit Uber. They're going to benefit all ride sharing companies, right? Of which uh, you know seventeen might pop up. I, I I can see them getting to monopoly status right. by taking down the cabs if the cabs don't form up and create their own rival company, which some have already done. Um, I can see them getting to that point, but like you said, at the issue where they start having to raise rates, then it becomes, okay, well, who has the cheapest service? It's a race to the bottom a little bit, and it honestly depends on whether or not VCs are willing to take that risk and be like, yeah, I'm going to fund this company because Uber needs to be taken down. It's gotten too big. Too big, you know, too too violent. Um, or does it turn into a thing where the VCs are kind of like, well, we're just not going to fund new transportation start- startups because no one's figured out how to make them profitable without price gouging consumers. Right. I and I, I want to, you know, there's so many. <laughs> the Uber, Uber is sort of like Silicon Valley's version of the Trump administration, where there's like a new, <laughs> there's a new scandal every day, or even by every the day. hour. You know, it's like. 
you really yeah. like a daily list of the scandals doesn't keep up with the fact, you know what I mean? Like if you only paid attention once a day, it's like, like a, a, we're recording this on Friday, March 3rd, like on Thursday, March 2nd, if you only paid attention at noon, the news was, uh, president Trump, uh, says attorney general, Jeff session does not need to recuse himself, but by six o'clock in the night, he'd recused himself. It's like, you, <laughs> you have to check every three hours to see what's going on. And it's the same with Uber, but like, like there was a thing this week where an Uber driver had taped, a. a yeah, he recognized that he had Travis Kalanick as his passenger in a car, and he videotaped it. Um, and and Kalanick had said some somewhat embarrassing things to the driver. Somewhat, yeah. But I I didn't I didn't think it was outrageous. It you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm vaguely no, it's un- just <laughs> I'm vaguely uncomfortable with the idea that he taped him in the first place. And I don't think what he said was all that outrageous. It was a little rude, but it it, it I thought the driver was sort of nutty too. Yeah, the problem is that there's already the narrative, right? right. There's already the narrative that he's yes. a, a jerk and a horrible person. So yes. you get him caught on tape doing anything jerkish. Yeah, and it, it and it blows up even further. Right, exactly. I think that's Serenity. I think that's exactly what happened. Where it's like everybody knows that that this Travis Kalanick is is at least a bit of a jerk, and that he's been him and his company have been caught doing really jerky, exceptionally jerky things lately, and. You hear, and he's secretly taped saying something, and what he said is at least somewhere on the jerky spectrum. And then you just jump to the worst conclusion. Whereas I think if I actually watched the video and I was like, "This isn't that big." Yeah, it's not. It's not that big. And speaking speaking of how it just seems like a new Uber story pops up every day, literally while we're <laughs> recording this, <laughs> The Verge Dateline uh, thirty minutes via, ago. Thirty yeah, minutes ago. Dateline. The New York Times via or the Verge via the New York Times reports that Uber has a secret worldwide program called Grayball to hide from government employees looking to catch Uber cars operating in violation of local regulations. <laughs> because the yeah. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this because it's just it's literally as we're saying, hey, Uber just keeps on getting caught doing really horrible stuff. Now there's another, I don't know. I, yeah. Like this is, this sounds like something that uh, a mildly shady company would, would go for be like, yeah, let's run some software to make sure you don't pick up passengers who might be government employees because we're breaking labor practices in certain cities. There's a, there's a whole lot to unpack there. So it looks like what they did is when they were in, (laughs) in municipalities, where Uber was deemed to be contrary to the local regulations, Uber would appoint somebody to figure out where the regulator's offices were and then look for, for anybody opening the Uber app on a frequent basis from those locations and then, I guess, not not pick them up. <laughs> Show fake cars. They'd also check the credit card information to see if the card was tied to a police credit union. Wow. But unknown to Mr. England and other authorities, I think this was the guy from Portland, uh, some of the digital cars they saw in the app did not represent actual vehicles, and the Uber drivers they were able to hail also quickly canceled. That was because Uber had tagged Mr. England and his colleagues, essentially grayballing them as city officials based on data collected from the app and in other ways. So yeah, not a good company. (laughs) <laughs> no, not a not having a great week but, as far as PR goes. But the 
the thing that I wanted to bring up was that uh, among this, you know, avalanche of these things, some of the the one story that to me is the sun to the planets of of these these other scandals are a series of planets, but the one at the center of it is Susan Fowler Rigetti's story of her year long employment, yeah, which to me is is different because. I, I, I've reread her entire piece like at least three times. It's extraordinarily well written, and, and I'm guessing that you've noticed the ways that it's well written because oh, absolutely, it, it's well written on like three different levels. Where where she, she makes her case extremely well. She obviously had her wits about her for the entire year that she worked right from the beginning when it first she first started to to be harassed. She she documented it and she kept emails and screenshots of chats. Uh, and it's so clear from her writing that she could back it all up. Um, yeah. But also the tone that she took in the article is it, it, it it's not necessary is not the right word, but it, it, it was taken from a way that, that she couldn't be easily dismissed. And, and it's the sort of tonal tap dancing that a woman has to take that a man doesn't even have to think about. Yeah, it was written. You're absolutely right in terms of the, I'm trying to think of the right word here. It was written in a very level platform where she's basically like, here are all these accusations that I'm laying out, but I'm not laying them out in a way that makes me sound especially angry right. or especially vindictive towards the company. Right. She was she basically laid it out almost factually, almost like a lawyer would lay out here here are the things that happened to me. On this date, this happened. On this date, this happened. Um but not written so drolly that you know, you can't read between the lines and actually get a good picture of what's happening. Uh, the the the, na- the specific nature of the harassment that she experienced is very specific to being a woman in a largely male company where male on female harassment is clearly tolerated at an institutional level. And it so you can't just say if the tables were turned and it was reversed because there's no such equivalent. There is no, there's no company in the world that's like the Uber for women, where uh, men at, at a fifty to one ratio as engineers get harassed. But yeah. if a man had suffered the moral equivalent of of this wrongdoing at, you know, in some other than sexual harassment or some other way, just but just something that everybody would agree was equally wrong on the moral spectrum. Uh, a man would document it in a way where I don't think he would have to even think about hiding his anger at what had gone on and what was tolerated. Whereas she did not hide, but but like tap dance between coming across as angry and not crossing the line into acting like it's a joke or it's not serious. Yeah. She had to pitch it very much, as you said, between the lines, 
because of retribution. I right. mean, we've all been following the stories and the fact that Uber has gone, you know, potentially sent lawyers after her this week. And I don't know, you know, the fact how right. factual that is or where the where that stands right now beyond her claims. Um, but the mere fact that, like, she had to write this in such a way because she was worried about retribution from a company that arguably she has a pretty darn good lawsuit against right. to begin with. Um, whereas, as you said, a man could very easily just write the angriest of angry medium rants and just be, you know, like, this has happened to me and how dare this company and this is a disgusting, you know, uh, violation of human rights and and my rights as a human, like, my rights in, in personally and, you know, I, I can't even write in that tone because right. it just makes me want to vomit. But... <laughs> It's yeah, it, they, and also honestly, in comparison, I believe you you linked to a medium article by one other woman who wrote about her Uber yeah. experiences, um, and hers were also very chilling and very bothersome. But she wrote it in a much, in a much vaguer, more not quite salacious style, right. but it was definitely written as more of a story and right. more of a, you know, here's here's a peek into my life. Whereas Susan Fowler's was very much, you know, uh, removed, re emotionally yeah. removed. is it, it was written very analytically. And it, it you know, there's it, it, the truth is that an angry woman is going to be dismissed by X percent of people who read her, mostly men, but also some women. You know, it, it's there's a woman who's angry in public is is gets a very different reaction and very different adjectives are used to describe her emotional mm -hmm. state than a man with the equivalent amount of anger and i'm i'm you know uh, i i i feel certain about that statement um i also feel like even though i'm certain of it and i'm incredibly sympathetic to it i don't even feel i feel like part of the reason that that's the case is that I, you know I'm not in a position to even judge it, right? Like it's yeah. It, 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 uh, like I can judge what what they did to Susan Fowler, um, but I'm not. It, it, I feel like as a man, especially you know, with every privilege you could possibly possibly have in this country, uh, uh, I'm not in a I'm not in a position to judge just how 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 widespread that unfairness is in terms of how we see deal with things like angry ang people who are rightfully angry in a professional context but yeah. she obviously is very well very familiar with it <laughs> well you know you know the verbal gymnastics that you need to thread especially working in a company like that you right. know she had a year of experience having to dance through clearly the insanity of the HR process and her higher ups um, coming out of that, you know, you're going to know, like the second that you write a piece like that, unfortunately, right. the second that a woman writes a piece like that, the first thing that a certain subsection of the internet is going to do is try and find ways of proving that she's crazy yep. or she was arrested or that some small aspect of it isn't true. And therefore the whole thing is in question. The whole thing is null and void. Exactly. Right. Oh, she cheated on a test when she was in the seventh grade. So she's right. untrustworthy, right. you know, or um, she claims this one thing happened on, uh, you know, the first Monday of July, 2015, but guess what? That was a federal holiday. It was, that was Independence Day. Uber was closed. <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. It actually happened July 3rd. Right. 
But she lied. Therefore, the entire thing is called into question. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately there is a certain subsection of the population um, that delights in trying to poke holes in stories like these. And I, I don't think that, you know, we should take everything at face value. Obviously, there is there is value to be had in fact-checking and not believing stories, right. you know, without, without doing some digging. But there's a difference between independent verification and, you know, and just going after somebody because they're saying something that you don't want to be true. Yeah. So you immediately jump into attacking them the first possible opportunity. It what occurs to me too, and and I, I just can't say it enough, and it sounds trite, but just how courageous it was for her to publish this. Because she under didn't have to under her own name. Under her yeah. own name, which it gives it you know, I'm not saying it's necessary. Like the other article that I linked to that you mentioned, it was published under a pseudonym, and she admitted it up front. She said, "I'm not comfortable sharing my name. This is a pseudonym, so there's no misdirection there." But you know, and again, I, I, I'm not saying that that wasn't useful and courageous in and of itself. But doing it under her own name is more courageous, and it leads more credence to it, um, because she clearly knew to expect a backlash. And I think it's obvious that that you you read the story and the the, the part that to me where you just the, the part of her story where you just go whoa was the part where many months into her employment at Uber, uh, I mean, and the other reason why I should just say this is that she now works at Stripe. She hasn't she's already landed another job. She doesn't have to you know she's not she has to worry about her employability. She's got a great job at a great company, so it'd be easy to just say you know what now I have a great job at a great company. Thank God that's over and and let it go. Um, but by coming public and and you know it, it's obviously the most well known she's ever been. You know she's a published author at O'Reilly, but uh, so I'm not saying it, that it's not like she hasn't had a a, a you know. A, stuff in the public eye before but it's a different kind of notoriety right um I, the whole the, the part of the story where you really just go i just went whoa was the part where she and some other women engineers at uber months later talking amongst themselves realized they all had problems with the same guy a manager ab- above them and several of them had reported their incidents to Uber's HR department. And all of them were told the same thing that, well, this is, we, you know, thank you for reporting it, but we're uncomfortable taking any action against him at this time because it's his first offense and he's a high performer. Yeah. And it's like, whoa. So they just say that. And you realize, well, how did they think that they were going to get away with it? How would they, you know, how did they think that eventually, some of these women would uh, figure this out in a company. Because no one wants to talk about this right. stuff. It's all based on the assumption that even if they do, they'll get the message that, you know, let, you know, this stuff is okay for high performers. And yeah, that they let didn't sleeping fear, dogs lie. What are they going to do? Go public? That they're, they, they seem like in, at, a, at a certain, whether it was, you know, stated or, just unconscious between the HR people who made the decision to, to, to deal with it this way. HR clearly assumed at Uber clearly assumed that these women would, none of these women would go public. Yeah. Well, because it's, it's too much of a risk. Right. 
Um, it's a, you know, again, we go back to the, it's the credibility issue. You may never land a job again if you're, if you don't have your facts and your story and things to back things up, you know, to back your evidence up. Right. Like Susan, there's. Susan Fowler Getty, by going public under her own name and with as much scathing detail as she did, was willing to do something that a company valued at $70 billion was willing to bet she wouldn't. Yep. Which is because amazing. She, yeah. And you talk about courageous, you know, people have been saying under the radar, don't go work for Uber, don't go work for Uber, don't go work for Uber, um, especially if you're a woman, but just in general, it's just not a good culture. But there really hasn't been somebody standing up on a chair and yelling, no, don't go work for Uber because you will be sorry um, until Fowler. Like, yeah. there's just, there wasn't that kind of like damning public scathe, like, I won't even invent like scathery, a new word. Because, but that's, but no, it's, it's, it's such a scathing critique of not only the HR department, I don't know how the people who work in that HR department, have spines or stomachs at that point. Like, I wonder how many people have quit in that department right. specifically over the years. And also, I forget from the story, but I wonder the gender of the HR department um, liaisons, too. I think some of, I think she said that some of them were women. Yeah, which just, that's an uh, even bigger all. gut punch. I don't even know. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's... Uh, it strikes me just as such a betrayal to to have to say to somebody's face... Um, sorry, we're not going to do anything about your, you know, your emotional or physical harassment, um, despite the fact that it could happen to anybody. Yeah. You know, we're just we're just going to look in your face and say no. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, that's the kind of thing that makes me want to never use their service again. Yeah. And and it just like I commend everybody who's deleted the app and burned it. And it's yeah. All right, I got to delete the app. It's yeah, terrible. you gotta. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> uh, I will say, it just in terms of people who've been outspoken critics, I, I've long followed. Um, I'm sure I don't know if you know her, but I'm sure you're aware of her. Sarah Lacey, founder of uh, Oh pa yeah Pando dot mm -hmm. and she has been on the uh, Uber is actually a terrible company beat for years now. Or path. And so yeah. the difference I would say is. Uh, that she's always been from the out. She's been a journalist her whole career. She's been writing about it from the outside as a journalist observing the company, um, not as an insider. That's the difference between her and and um, Fowler. Yeah, she can only get right. you know anonymous quotes and right. you know hopefully people wanting to go on the record, but it's not going to. It's ultimately all the scoops in the world are not going to help you in contrast with someone just coming straight out and telling their story. Yeah. So anyway, I felt like we had to talk about it. Glad we did. Oh, yeah. Me uh, too. Anything else you want to mention before we wrap up? Gosh, I think we uh, we, we kind of ran the gamut. I know. We caught up. I feel like I kind of <laughs> caught up to the news. Although, who knows? God almighty, there's probably like another Uber scam <laughs> scandal. I know. <laughs> in the next, the last 30 minutes, we'll never in addition make it. to we'll Graybald, never, it, yeah. In the 24 hours it usually <laughs> takes for shows to get published, we'll never make it. There's going to be something... <laughs> Something will break. Undoubtedly. This news cycle, that's that's what I'd like to talk about. I'd like to talk about a pause button. Could someone right. make me a home kit pause button for the news cycle? Please, no news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everybody can read uh, Serenity's fine work at uh, imore.com. And on Twitter, your Twitter name is, uh, I forget. What's your Twitter name? Saturn. 
How do, how do you spell it? S e t t e r n. Yes. That's a fine follow on Twitter. Uh, anything else you want to mention or pitch? Oh gosh! Other than the, um, we're doing a lot of work on on iPad Pros specifically. People who are doing real world yeah. uh, iPad examples. So if you have, um, if you're using your iPad for work, especially if it's something outside the norm that you think is pretty awesome, please hit me up on Twitter or on email at Serenity at iMore because I'd love to hear your story. We're collecting some really good ones. All right, I will definitely put a link into the series iPad Pros over at iMore, but I think it's great. And I think it's, I think it's inter- really interesting to think about it in, co- in terms of context, where these, where and what these people are doing, not just, sure. oh, they're doing the same things they used to do. Um, I think so our sponsors, Squarespace, that's where you go to make a website. Remember the offer code Gruber, you get 10% off your first purchase. Harry's, go to harrys.com slash talk show, get a free shaving kit, pay for shipping. And last but not least, Backblaze. Back up your Mac. If you don't have Backblaze already, just go sign, do it right now. The podcast is over. You're not missing anything. Go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball and get a 15-day free trial. Thank you, Serenity. Thanks, John.